the Big Bopper would say, hello baby. Welcome to the second episode of the Big Inside View. Not the big interview. This is where I tell you about the things I've seen and heard or done during the week around the European football scene in which I can't or didn't need to write about in the papers or talk about on radio. So it's for you, exclusively. This particular episode is free for your listening pleasure. But from August, you'll be able to tune into the Big Inside View every week. We're inviting listeners to join the Big Interview Members Club. For £2.99 per month, you'll get a Big Inside View every week. You'll also get one extra, exclusive, Big Interview episode per month. The kind of footballers you're used to hearing and you love hearing, the same kind of chat. When you sign up, you'll get Raphael van der Vaart, plus a brand new Big Inside View that from now, for members is a weekly treat. Right, Neil, this is a testing one for you because uh, usually you get me at a distance, which everybody loves. Usually you get me on the phone or Skype, but you're on the purple couch. You're on the purple couch in Rottenburg. What the Rottenburg are we doing here? (laughs) Okay, we're uh, we're in northern Germany on big interview business. This will come out before... The big interview listeners get to hear the interview that we will be recording later today with Slavin Bilic, West Ham manager. His team are pre-season training not far from where we are now and we'll be seeing Slavin later this evening. Looking forward to that one? All hail Slavin, all hail Slavin. Big, intimidating, clever, rock star footballer. What's not to like? Okay, that's for later. For now... Let's start with the inescapable transfer news and its top-level stuff. Where would you like to begin? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe Morata. I think that in the, in the confusion of, of what's been happening, I think it's been a little bit lost about Antonio Conte's devotion to Morata in that Conte was the author of Morata signing for Juventus but didn't inherit him because... After the months towards the end of the season when Morata moved from Roma to Juve, Conte was being seduced by the Italian national side. Off he went. And if, if you remember, it was a real guillotine affair that left the Juve fans and players and management a bit pissed off with Conte. It, it's kind of worked out okay if you look at Allegri's record thereafter. So if you like a big river and you want to trace it to the tributary, then it's Dr. Morata, I presume, because Conte is an avowed fan. So there you go, number one. Number two, and I'm saying all this because I think in the Premier League now, for those who consume Premier League football or who are Chelsea fans or United fans, there's this Lukaku, Morata, Morata, Lukaku, which is a difficult word to say together. Morata, Lukaku, Lukaku, Morata. But a year ago, when Conte was taken over, he authorised and Chelsea made a bid of around 65 million euros. Again, to try and... um, link up with Morata. So it's clear that over the summer there's been a lack of uh, coherence between what Chelsea, the club, wanted and what Conte wanted. It clearly hasn't led to a breach because Conte signed a new two-year contract. But as far as Conte was concerned, it was Morata he wanted. And I think you can see why. It's, it's patently clear that you could find elements of Diego Costa and Lukaku and you can find elements of uh, Diego Costa and Morata. Morata is not nearly as hostile, not nearly as you know, a bad bitch on, on the pit. Who is? reasonably good shout. Who is? You know, you published his book. Diego Costa, what would you say from the pages? Loved 
in almost dress, every dressing room he's ever been. And funny guy, I know having met him and talked to him, he's actually a big pussycat. Off, off the pitch, he's a sap. Likes to muck around, a whiz at poker, but a, a real beast on the pitch. And what, not, not to everybody's taste. Murata's not like that. Murata will push things to the limit and sometimes he'll, what would we call it, cross those limits in terms of maybe trying to pull the wool over the referee's eyes. There you go. Um, but as as outright, you wouldn't want to meet him down a dark alley as Diego Costa. No, whereas Lukaku, if if he's given it, for all the things people say about his, his technical ability or his first touch, Lukaku beasts any defender who isn't ready for it. And that maybe accounts for the fact that classy defenders in the top clubs have thus far managed to keep Lukaku's scoring record against top five, top six. Too low for everybody's liking. Morata's different from that. Morata is yet to burst. He's yet to reach his full. He's yet to play for a manager who says, you're my guy. You're every week. The responsibility is on your shoulder. I may pay you left wide. I may ask you to roam and drag space for the Chelsea players, which they notoriously did last year, to arrive from midfield. Morata will do that. Will he hold the ball up like Costa? No. But technically, he's a really, really good footballer. Um, either foot, head... No, no lost cause. It's going to be fun to watch him. And from somebody who's reliant on Spain's development, I think it's a good thing for Spain and for Morata to watch him develop and threaten Diego Costa's place on the international side. You mentioned the fact that he's never been the man at a club mm. before and now he's going to be the man. So tell us a little bit about the backstory then. You know, how has his career arrived at this point and how was he kind of kept bubbling under the service? He was a prodigy with the youth sides. It was very clear once he joined from Hintafi that this was a guy who could play right across a front three, could play on his own as a nine, although not in the old traditional hold the ball up. He likes the ball going in front of him. Technically, he's got some of the tricks that Benzema has got. But to some extent, his era has been blighted a little bit by the fact that during his time as anything approaching a senior at Real Madrid, there's been a minimum Benzema and Ronaldo and subsequently Bale. And it wasn't until um, Carlo Ancelotti needed a solution for Bale and put Di Maria, you know, another guy that I think legitimately was keeping Morata out of the team because Di Maria in his day for Real Madrid was, was phenomenally good. Um, he was put back in midfield. The front three then became this famous BBC of uh, Bale, Benzema and Cristiano Ronaldo. And that meant that Morata was always looking for scraps in terms of where are my appearances? The cup, yeah, fine. Coming on as a sub, either to turn a game or when a game's dead and looking to give him experience time. And that's why he went to Juventus. He went with a buyback clause. Real Madrid, on selling him, said, we know you need more time. We know you're not going to get it right now. We know we might have to buy you back. And... At Juventus, if you survive and if you take your team to the title and if you take your team to the cup final and you take your team to the Champions League final as Morata did, scoring in Berlin against Barcelona, then you know you've made it. Um, you've certainly passed a certain kind of apprenticeship. But Allegri during the season, is the first of the debut season, talked about Morata needing to believe, needing to not only be more consistent and regular, but to have that hardness and sweep everything out of the way. And, and he put the responsibility firmly on Morata's shoulders, not saying, ah, you're right, you're a young lad from Spain in a tough Italian league playing for a side where the, the, 
The demands are at least as high as at Real Madrid. He went, you, change, grow up, mature. And he did that. And I think if you look at Morata putting Real Madrid out for Juventus in the semi-final of the Champions League, that goal um, in, the, in Berlin in the Champions League final, the fact that Real Madrid bought him back more than they let him out to Juventus for, and the fact that he's participated in an era at Real Madrid where his little cameo has been, you know, on, on starts, it's been a goal a game. The impact he has as a sub shows that he's, he's pretty nearly always ready. Um, it's interesting to me that the only time I've really seen him out of a game, thwarted, dwarfed, was for Spain against Italy, where Conte was the coach. And Conte knew how to rotate uh, Chiellini and Bonucci and Barzali against uh, Morata in Paris when Spain lost the title in the Euros. So that Conte blunted him in that game, but has still bought him, says that he believes not only is there a lot more to come, but that he can bring that out of Morata. And I'll just tell you, somebody who enjoys watching football, that I'm going to miss Morata a lot. When he's on the ball, things happen. He's an elegant athlete, an elegant footballer. And as a guy, without knowing him intimately, I've spent some time with him individually on and off mic. He's very, very funny, very confident. And I think he's going to be a guy who lights up the Chelsea dressing room. All right, somewhere in the middle of that stuff, we mentioned the BBC, uh, Real Madrid. And yeah. I guess you want to revisit the moving Mbappe story and how it relates to one of those three guys. Yeah, this is one where we could be overtaken. Uh-huh. Because they, you know, it's an all-out bombardment. It's an all-out assault between... Now, I, I, I think PSG have dropped out of it. And I think it's between City and, and Madrid for Mbappe. And I think it's as, it's as simple as this. Mbappe knows that there are fewer impediments right now, irrespective of the fact that Pep Guardiola has attacking players throughout, dotted throughout his front six. He still knows that Guardiola is telling him, you will be a principal striker. The others will need to fight for their places. I think he still knows that if, if Mbappe went to Manchester City and Pep was allowed by the owners to sell Aguero, he would. But City not only have wanted Mbappe for months, they've got the money to spend and they've been hammering away both Monaco and the player. The difficulty is that, you know, Madrid took Mbappe to Valdebebas, the training ground, to show him round, to impress him when he was 14. That's four, ne- four nearly five years ago. People might be saying, um, OK, Sir Alex Ferguson did that with Arjun Robin at Manchester United from PSV Eindhoven and still he ended up a Chelsea legend Bayern Munich put Manchester United out with Bayern Munich in the Champions League so that doesn't assure you of anything but if you're a young Frenchman about to make your decision your hero as you're growing up is Cristiano Ronaldo as attested by Mbappe's dad he's there welcomes you the club have made what a sort of little coveted diamond of Benzema saying you stay irrespective of outside criticisms we see your value here I'm assured that Real Madrid are saying to the Mbappe camp, we touched on this last time, if you come, we'll offer bail to Manchester United. And I think the Mbappe people are saying, wherever we go, for whatever wage, we want to know, we want to see a clear path where this kid is playing as if he were an established regular, not like an 18-year-old. And I think on his form and his maturity, I think that's a legitimate demand. I think people, punters like you or I or the listeners, who are saying... I want to see people who 
aren't only hungry for money and expensive cars. Now, Mbappe's going to get the money. That's just a given. But after that, what we want to see dealmakers saying for good players is, right, the criteria we're going to apply there is, what's your sporting philosophy? How well do you play? Do you consistently win trophies? Am I going to be a consistent trophy winner? Am I going to play all the time? With whom am I going to play? What's the coach like? These are the type of criteria you would apply if, if we had the talent and it was a seller's market. And I think Mbappe's in a seller's market, hence the 180 million euro price. Hence, I, I think that there's the slightly stronger chance that he goes to Real Madrid. But if none of the BBC are willing to move, if they all say, well, let the kid come and I'll fight with him for a place, maybe Mbappe and his people say, we've got another option. Maybe PSG come back into it. The thing where I think he'd now be making a mistake personally is staying with Monaco. Previously, I didn't think that, but as John Collins warned us, that's why I have the, you know, the idea that we should just mention Mendy signing for City briefly. Because in that podcast with John... He sat there telling, I, I surprised him by saying, I know you were offered a job for this Russian billionaire to over the prince in Monte Carlo said, John, come back and be the coach. And you want, he wanted the job. So he st- didn't go that way. New sporting director, Russian owner. But John stayed in touch. And I don't know how many months ago it was, six, seven months ago, he said to us, Silva, Mbappe and Mendy. You know, Silva, huge player, huge feat to Manchester City with the Pep Guardiola you know, Colgate ring of confidence around him. Yeah, baby, you can play. Hold on, let me see who you can work with. Ah, let's work with Silva Senior. And let's see if David can pass on to Bernie. And then, you know, Mbappe doesn't need an introduction. He's a phenomenal athlete and footballer. And one of the things that's attractive about Mbappe is he appears to have the character to go with the talent, which doesn't drive you crazy when you get a numpty, an idiot given all the talent, not Mbappe. And then there's Mendy. Like John said, he'll go and a little flip for those who can't understand why Monaco are selling the ground from underneath Mbappe's feet and effectively saying to him, if you stay here, <laughs> this time you won't be good enough for the French title. You, weren't, you already weren't good enough to get through to the Champions League final. I think that that means that they know that by the end of the summer Mbappe's going to go. That's their tactics. John, again, the guru, said that I said to him, he's a Russian billionaire. He owns the club. Why wouldn't he keep the, the, the dynasty that he's built and look, because he's got all the money, he likes to turn a deal. And maybe I was the stupid one for being surprised because rich people get rich by liking to make deals, liking to make money. But to sell the players they have, um, including Bakayoko, jeez, it, it, it's a shame because we were excited by Monaco. You could watch it as a neutral and go like, that's worth turning the television on for and, if Mbappe goes, then I'm, I'm not quite so sure that they're going to be as successful or entertaining for the neutral anymore. Yeah, and if you're a Monaco fan, then you're denied what Ajax fans got in the in the 90s, yeah. where they managed to hold yeah. onto them for you know at least a few years. 24, 25. Exactly. Yeah. No, it's wrong. It's wrong. I, it, if I were that Russian billionaire, if you were that Russian billionaire, things would be so different. We on, wouldn't be doing on this on several levels. Exactly. <laughs> and we probably would. How? If at all, does the Mbappe saga affect what's happening with Neymar? Um, I'm not. I'm not certain. I'm not certain that it does. The first thing to say is that Neymar has been guided by his father, and that's that's why you know Gerard Piquet um, talked about he's staying, and then said, ah, "I was just 
giving an opinion. It wasn't a pronouncement. You should give a little bit of background there. That was a, a tweet from Piquet. It was. It was. It was in and around the the defeat of Juventus in a friendly match in the International Cup in America and. You know, what I've seen, I know Gerard really well. I, I've interviewed Neymar a couple of times, so I know him a lot less. The age difference is far greater. And, and the, you know, it's, it's, Neymar is not somebody with whom I've got a particular feeling or relationship. But when you speak to the players, speak to PK, when you watch the shafts of training that we're allowed to watch, what you can see is that um, Neymar is different from the majority of the squad in that I, I was a little critical of him in my ESPN column. And if he moves to Paris Saint-Germain, so he's got Brazilian mates, I think that's immature. But the the lack of chums who are like him at Barcelona, I think is one of the factors that maybe is on his mind. In that he's definitely close and respectful. There's a, there's a three-part society with Messi, Suarez and Neymar. Are Suarez and Neymar going to keep in touch once they change clubs? No, definitely not. Are they as tight right now? No, because, and this happens in dressing rooms, all, they're at different stages. There's Neymar, 24, 25, he thinks he's 21, behaves at night like he's 21, um, nothing illegal, but pushing the boundaries of what an elite athlete should be doing, I think. And those boundaries are now really just restrictive. So I ain't saying he's Frank Worthington or George Best, but I am saying that he likes to live maybe that's fair enough because he feels like he's Peter Pan Suarez and Messi have got kids partners their life is more steady guarderia nursery school but school playing with the kids blah blah it's not Neymar so the reason I mention this is that Piquet being irreverent noisy not averse to a bit of nightlife in his time has got one of the is one of the players with a bit of a bond with Neymar and also likes the show and the anarchy. And also, Piquet grew up as physically bigger than the majority of his compatriots um, as, a, as a teen or a young teen and was protecting Messi as Messi was kicked to France all over the hard earth pitches of the working class valleys around Catalonia when the Barca young teams were playing. And I think what's developed, you look at it now and you see uh, Piquet watching the same thing happening to Neymar in the league because he's, you know, he's, he's at or around the most... I think he's the most fouled player this season. He's at or around the most fouled player for the majority of his time in Spain. And I think referees don't protect him, um, irrespective of the fact that he's light. And I'm not certain that he goes down drastically easily, but I think he's underprotected. So there's a bond. So, so Piquet came out and said he's staying and then rectified it um, over the last 24 hours saying that's my opinion it's not an, it's not a pronouncement so I, I think that the, the dilemma for Neymar can be summed up like this I think he, he'd be relatively happy to stay at Barcelona but his dad is saying you're the star son Messi's in your way Ballon d'Or awaits build history somewhere else and oh look at the size of the ward in my pocket now um, hey little boy if I get a bonus for guiding you well then that's life. You get more wages. I get a little slice as your advisor, agent. Grubby? Yeah, maybe. But my point of view, Neil, is that he should own the decision. I, I wrote about the Figo Toure, Yaya Toure thing. Figo made the right decision. Figo's regarded as a traitor by certain Catalans. But he timed it right. He got more money. He won trophies. 
He saw the slide coming. Barcelona won. His, his colleagues that he left behind won nothing for six years. Madrid went mental. Figo won the Champions League. He got it right. So Neymar, stay or leave. Either one, I don't care. But make the decision based on what's the right thing for me, not what my dad says. Okay, and if you are a Liverpool fan, should you be hoping he stays so Liverpool don't end up with a sizable wad burning in their pocket? You, you, you really struggle in this market to, to understand when somebody, a club says no, uh-huh. not for sale, can't happen. I don't know anymore how often you can put faith in that. It's the message that Liverpool are briefing on, fine. Barca have liked Coutinho for a long time and the original idea was to bring Coutinho to, to give a playing and a group chum to Neymar. And w- without telling you who, there was, there's a, there's a cl- I've got a close friend, a close contact at Liverpool Football Club who said to me, casting ahead to this summer, you know, Coutinho will be at Barcelona. And I know that um, Jurgen Klopp began last summer to make plans for buying a specific player last summer because he believed, he was told that the club had said to Coutinho in summer 2017, if you give us that year, you can go. Now, Coutinho in the meantime, as clubs sometimes yield a harvest for their planting their crops, signed a new deal, became team leader, obviously feels that something's happening under Klopp, may wish to stay. Maybe Coutinho doesn't want to go to Barcelona just yet. And there's another thing, in all fairness. Barcelona, in technical terms, saw a footballer that they believed um, in terms of nationality, because they love a Brazilian, uh, ability, magic, market ability, and gradually importance and skill and, and goals and assists. They thought they saw a player that fit the template. As they've watched more and more, they're unclear if he's a, a third forward or a midfielder. So there's a dilemma for them about whether Coutinho is as important right now as he seemed to them 16, 17 months ago. And whether you invest in a player you've seen proving you right, or you say, I'm going to bet on my instincts, is a big dilemma. And they wonder whether, I know that they wonder whether Coutinho gives enough big goals or not yet, and whether if they sign him, that's going to come, because he's going to be playing, frankly, sorry, Liverpool, right now in a better side. So the Coutinho thing has got a long way to run, but I'll emphasise... Barcelona, without selling, without, they're not going to sell Neymar, without receiving the 220 million euros for Neymar's buyout clause, don't have punchy buying power like Chelsea, like PSG, like Manchester United, like Manchester City. Barcelona don't have that. Their debt, their lack of sales, the money that they've invested in, new contracts for Iniesta, for Busquets, sorry, for Rakitic, for uh, Ter Stegen, and, and latterly for Messi. Mm-hmm. All of that means that they don't have money to brandish about. Yeah, they've chosen to invest basically in these guys' sort of final elite contracts, yeah. knowing that they're not going to get the sale yeah. for them. And set aside in a region of 500 million to renew the stadium, a project which was supposed to start a few months ago and has been postponed for a year. Why? Because Dosh. Okay, before we leave the transfer merry-go-round, is there any other moves, real or imaginary, that you'd like to discuss? Yeah, Young Robertson. Young Robertson from Hull to um, Liverpool for any Scott via Queens Park and via Queens Park starting at Queens and, Park yeah we're yeah. we're all good uh, amateur footballers starting in Scotland um, I, th- I think for any Scott it's exciting you know to see one of the guys that m- will fill a place 
in our international team being tested, being asked to do more potentially in uh, European situations and having, you know, how you might be able to have a couple of bad weeks. And the fans and the manager will say, well, we need you more than you need us. It's not that way at Liverpool, so it's exciting. Again, um, I know from Liverpool, and I knew months and months ago that they've been that they would spend the months from then to now weighing up the choice between Robertson and Tierney. It's now, Tierney, Tierney, Celtic left back. Uh, so you look at Tierney and you think, certainly, I think there is a phenomenal footballer, exciting, tough. I don't think the emphasis on attack v defence is a Danny Alves thing. I think it's really clear that he's comfortable on the ball. And one of the things that will excite the, the um, how would you say it? Those who aren't studying for a professional, uh, from a professional basis, he's going to look very good going forward. The question, I suppose, is at what level has Tierney been exposed in Scottish football compared to what Robertson's learned in the Premier League? But that was the, those were the two candidates. And those are the two candidates for nearly a year, maybe, maybe just over a year. So Robertson in getting there before Ken Tierney, I think has done a right good job. And I'd have to say, just if Ken Tierney's listening, um, much though I hated losing the cup final, the fact that he went to hospital, fixed your broken jaws as it could be in 25 minutes. Was that super glue? Fought your way through the crowds, out of the ambulance, and ran up the steps to get your medal at the end. Uh, yeah, that's what proper footballers are made of. I have to say, I like that. It was my favourite cup final performance. Um, and a little kind of code to that story, of course. Andrew Robertson, when he was young, was released by Celtic, although he was a few years, good few years older than. I have to confess, I didn't know that. Chiantini, uh, exactly. Young exactly. footballers, if you're released, it ain't never over. ever ever give up. It ain't over. Um, so, Andy Robertson, Chiantini. Danilo? I mean, where does... Where does yeah, look, listen, I've talked so much about the other ones, let, let's be quick. Yeah. Danilo is one of those, that I trust my judgment. Every, listen, everybody gets things wrong. I'm not a professional football scout, but you're asked to learn and listen so often. That I like my instincts. And this is one of those where I'm going to have to really be careful because Danilo, when he came to Real Madrid, was shit. I mean... That's not, that, you're, not, you're not being careful. Rank, That's not very careful. His positional sense... His gay abandon. He was playing like Bambi in the spring, lolloping along and saying, "Well, lovely day." And there's a fence to leap. Well, fuck, what just happened there? And that's no good at the top level. And he was tolerated by um, Rafa Benitez and helped get him the sack because the president said, "Well, he's the best right back in the world. You must play him all the time." Oh, flip. And he just looked like somebody who could run. He looked like a competition winner. And yet, it's part of the Zidane magic that you can plainly see um, as the months go by that one, in training, he's been taught a little bit. He's been taught about more to judge when to go, when to stay. Secondly, and this is a component for everybody who's listening, man, woman, boy, girl, footballer, stamp collector. If you have an ability and your confidence is ripped to shreds and undermined, nobody will see that ability. Danilo's confidence has shot under Zidane to the point at which the thing he did always do well at Madrid, once he got high up the pitch, he wasn't playing like a winger, but he was playing like Ziga. He was playing like your archetypical, really big, but quite deft, flying wing-back who could use the ball quite well when he got up. There's a goal in him, there's an assist in him. All of that's clear. 
But suddenly, his confidence has meant that he's a bit more judicious defensively. And in the last eight weeks, ten weeks at Real Madrid, suddenly you could, you know, the thing that I resent, the thing that I resent having to go back on the view is, if you spend 30 million euros to buy him from Porto, which Real Madrid did, and they made a profit on him, then, you know, other right-backs around the world, get your finger out of your arse and do something, because... If Danilo's left the top of Guardiola's choice list now that Dani Alves is buggered off to Paris Saint-Germain, then everybody else needs to start the game a little bit. But I'm hopeful for him. The thing I'm trying to say is, I'm going to put the bean counter back to zero again and start again on, on Danilo and, and see what the Premier League makes him, see what his rampaging runs are yield at City. But given that City couldn't defend well enough last season... Boy, that means that the Otamendi, Mendy, Stones, Company, Ederson wall, in inverted commas, behind him, and and Gundogan, if he's back, who can drop in and and organise and say, this is where we're going wrong, then it's not just Danilo we're watching, it's everybody else around him. Okay, we we, we do try and keep this show a little shorter than the beginning of you, so we are in a... <laughs> We've painted ourselves in a bit of a corner. No so let's try and move on with some tourist uh, information. What, a couple of tips? Why not? A couple of tips? Fancy a trip to Spain? All right, well, people always ask me, you know, where should I go? Or I'm here, and can you take me or somebody? Hello, now listen, sorry, I don't know your name, the Chelsea fan who said, My son and I are about to embark on the Camp Now tour. Are you available to guide us around? That's your nice, Sunday job. Nice try. I sent the link to Everybody's Got a Hungry Heart, and it didn't seem to cause a laugh, so. Apologies about that. So here's the tips proactively. Spain v Italy at the beginning of September. They're locked at the top of the qualification group for the Russian World Cup. They don't particularly like each other. For years, for 80 years, Italy were Spain's bête noire. Spain then conquered them. Italy put them out of the Euros. Blah, 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 blah. You can hear. There's a story. There's a backstory. They're playing at the Bernabeu. Um, it's a gigantic ground. It's winner takes all because only one team qualifies automatically from that group and they are tied at the top after a 1-1 draw in Italy in the previous group game. The cheapest price which you can buy from from rfef.com, that's the Spanish Federation, and I'll put this information on my Twitter feed. The cheapest price at the Bernabeu is €10. It's in the international break. Some people who like the European football should just nick on a plane and get over to the Spanish capital with a ticket to go and watch Spain v Italy because it'll be tense, it'll be a proper international, two right good sides. The other one, I haven't got quite as much information on it, but the Camp Nou Super Cup, um, first leg, which is the Spanish between the, it's the equivalent of the Charity Shield, but competitive, home and away. It's Barca-Real Madrid, meaning that we'll have three Classicos um, before mid-August. There's one coming up this Saturday in Miami, uh, Real Madrid-Barcelona, and the Super Cup first leg's August 13 at the Camp Nou. The Catalans go on holiday in August. It's a gigantic capacity, 99,000. I think there'll be tickets on the day. I think there'll be tickets in advance. If you yearn to go to a Classical, probably August 13th is the the time to go and do it. I think that's very useful information for some of our listeners. Um, Okay, we have been to Barcelona. Yeah. Uh, Let's go to Madrid. What's happening? What's new with Real? Now, why go to Madrid? Because they're world champions, Spanish champions, European Super Cup holders, Spanish champions... They're the important club in Spain right now, aren't they? That's why I go there, I think. And it's a, it's a briefer one. But they, you know, I think everybody, or it may well be that everybody who listens to the show 
spotted their friendly. And I don't know what you think about these of international friendly matches. I'll give you a, I'll give you a helper. Sid despises them. Sid's in a spiral of depression because Ronald McDonald led teams out. I don't know which teams I saw, it was. I saw Man United. Points. I think it was Man United Real Madrid, was it? And okay, that's that's a joke, man. It'd be like, that's scripted by Tarantino. But like everybody, I think who's not that keen on international summer friendlies, um, but would have checked the result or the video highlights would have seen a penalty shootout. Ten penalties, only three were converted. There were shots that you know knocked ice cream out of spectators' hands. You know there was one where the keeper lit a cigar and just watched the ball roll by. It went every direction except for the net. Only three scorers. It was ultra pathetic. Um, and Madrid lost. The thing that I'm sticking to that I thought was much more important is that Madrid took youngsters on tour, and and I think they've claimed recently in the last five six years. La Fabrica, their youth system has earned them about 120 million euros in sales. But more importantly, players that have either come through their youth system or that they've bought quite young, like for example, um, Lucas Vasquez or Asensio. Asensio was bought quite young. It wasn't like he was groomed from the age of 12 or 13. But to me, it still counts. The youth system in general is beginning to work. Now, the B team, the Castilla, sometimes called the under-21s, but effectively the B team, um, had a brilliant season under Guti, or the youth team had a brilliant, brilliant season, and um, they so they played late into their um, into June, and therefore they weren't available. So they've gone down one level for certain players who came and performed against Manchester United. So that you know it was relatively interesting looking to start with. If you look at a side of Kehler, Carvajal, Varane, Nacho, Marcelo, Modric, Cruz, Isco, Lucas Vasquez, Benzema, and Bale. But if you then look at Ashraf and Luis Miguel and Manu and Alvaro, and then you think about Teo Fernandez, Danny Gomez up front, Teo Fernandez, Franchu, and Teo Fernandez made his debut having been bought from his release clause being exercised. He was an Atletico player. He played at Alaves last season. Alaves his best season in the league probably ever. They reached the cup final. Valiant performance, beaten by Barcelona. But Teo is this guy who. Like for example, Pep Guardiola bid for him and his brother eighteen months ago, um, and and effectively Madrid have robbed Atleti, their city neighbours, of a fantastic player. He bombs down the wing and wing, and Lindelof takes him down for the penalty, and it's you know all square in in the match one one, and on penalties it's a bit of a farce, but dotted throughout Zidane's team are kids who you don't expect to see really dominating a first team place for four or five years. I want to be even-handed here. We've spent the best part of the last eight or nine years saying, look at Barca's Cantera, look at the continuity, look at the strategy. Boy, when it's happening at Madrid, I'm not saying each one of those is going to become a Sesc or an Iniesta or a Pique, but they're, they're doing exactly what I was critical of them not doing six, seven, eight years ago, and I think it's fabulous to see. Fabulous to see because there's there's a mission, there's an idea, it's telling other kids further, these kids now, you can make it. It's now a club where it isn't superstars only. Right back 17 years ago when he said Zidane's and Pavone's, and Pavone wasn't the right player to name it on. The, the system broke down. They basically didn't bring any through. 17 years later, it is Zidane's and Pavone. Zidane the coach. And the Pavones, there's a list of about 12 of them now. 
Okay, um, we're almost time to get off the football, but um, I think you had some Spurs chat you wanted to share with the listeners. I do. It's, it's, listen, there's a story here. You know, Walker's gone to, to City. And um, if you ask the Spurs players what the manager thinks about Walker, he might, you might get back strong phrases about his attitude, about his... what the Spurs manager's view on this guy's professionalism is. And he feels something similar about Danny Rose. And it's my opinion that between him and, and Daniel Levy, the idea of selling two full England internationals in the same transfer window isn't on. But, but it's my impression that unless Danny Rose finds a new way to impress Pochettino, then a club who wants to buy him will be able to. There's the shout. But everybody can take a manager's impression and, and throttle it and change it and build from scratch again. Good luck to him. I certainly hope that happens. But, but I think the fact that Spurs are very cagey about where they want to invest and like to move the market, not only slowly, but to Daniel Levy's tailor-made pre- precision in money spent, profits made, wages offered... I think that in in other circumstances, if this wasn't the market that just sold an England fullback to Manchester City, then maybe their other fullback might have been on the market too. Okay, almost time for us to move our sights away from the big inside view and to the interview that we're about to do with Slavin Bilic for the big interview. Look forward to listening to that. Um, what you you want to know about my spare time, don't you? You know, I always, I always like to find out what you're doing away from work. What are the things you plug into that weird little brain of yours that make you like this? Is that, is that what I see wrinkled across your face? Well, I saw your show notes and, and I just saw the words Wonder Woman. I'm, I'm, really, hoping, <laughs> I'm really hoping that's got something to do... <laughs> I'm hoping it's got something to do with what you've been, what you've been watching. And Hello, Linda more. Carter. Where are you now? So look, um, I do like to overdose on culture. And the thing that I'm obsessed with at the moment is silk. I know that the show went out in the UK, but I live in Spain, so I caught up with it years later. Silk's a fabulous um, sort of drama with good, rich hints of comedy, brilliant writing, brilliant, precise, dry, quick writing. Um, but QCs in London, a set of QCs. And the thing to recommend it is that um, the brilliant Maxine Peake, who's Veronica Ball and Shameless, and those glorious first three series... Um, Neighbour to the Gallaghers. Um, she's in it and she's fabulous. She was Victoria Wood's prodigy and as a result was around Victoria Wood and Julie Walters all the time. And for all Maxine Peake's own acting ability, there's instances where you can see Julie Walters as well. She's learned from the best. I don't know, was it, who said all geniuses steal? Let's say it was Bowie. I don't know. Don't really care. But she's done that and she's fabulous. And Rupert Penry Jones, who was in that Spooks, you know, and Henry, are you listening? Rupert Penry Jones is doing a massive takeoff of Henry Winter. If Maxine Peake is Julie Walters in another body, Rupert Penry Jones has seen Henry Winter all the times and gone, Oh, that boy rocks a good old show. I'm going to take that straight into the screen. So, Henry, he owes you some royalties. So, all that's left for me to say is if you watch Silk on Catch Up or Apple TV or whatever, or Netflix even, the, the hidden star is Neil Stook as Billy, who's the clerk of the QC set, and he's fabulous. And if I could pick anybody to be in that, oh, yeah, I'd be Billy. 
Wonder Woman, well, in history, in Cults Academy, they never explained the First World War like that. That's all I'm saying. And if we'd had superpowers um, and a woman like um, Gail Gadot on our team during the World Wars saved a lot of lives and peace would have come sooner. Oh, then just a little minute of peace. Wonder Woman. Lovely. And then, um, anything else? Sound-wise, I'm listening to the Avalanches. Since I left you, Australian, samples everywhere, beautiful. I love a bit of lemon jelly, same vibe. And um, the thing that's keeping me awake at night is, not Wonder Woman, but Springsteen's um, autobiography, which again, I'm late to, but like he's written it like some of his epic songs. You know, it's, it's, it's some of it's stream of conscious, it's wordy, it's not a traditional narrative. It flicks here and there, comes back to themes. And, you know, I admire his style and that he takes a point and maybe he emphasises it two, three times and, and tells you tales of impoverishment, embarrassment, mental health problems, risks taken, fights had, bike crashes. And above all, what streams through, like any autobiography I like to, to read, is you see how, how close to the edge a career sails before it can succeed, before creativity, before what we retrospectively realise or recognise as brilliance can properly flower, that it's almost like there has to be failure and risk and a sort of catalyst that says in somebody's life, unless you do this, your your ability to vocalise your your paints, your words, your movements, whatever it is, film, music, writing, painting, that they won't flower, they won't come to fruition. And Springsteen's story about how that happened to him is brilliant and it helps a little bit that I'm just back from New York and the breakthrough moments happen in New York and it's a sensational book so far. I'm only two-thirds two of the way through, but I'd recommend it to everybody. The You've just seen the future of, of rock and roll moment. In New York now? Is that not the review? Oh, God. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. This is... Okay. So he gets the... the yeah, he gets the the most unbelievable review. And I accept that. I agree with you. That's the, that's the phrase that sets him off. And in the book, he's fulsome in his thanks. Yeah. I forget the critic. The critic, yeah, exactly. But, but, and it, but it's a super famous critic. But you're, you're bang on. And he does talk about that. But again, to me, it's like... The, the blending of friendships in a band and for a little Steve uh, Steve Van Zandt for example he's not there really for the for the first album uh, Greetings From and there's a dispute now but not a dispute but they don't Bruce and Steve don't remember the same way what contributions were made on the tracks and in the first album where he's sent back to write a single and he writes Blinded by the Light which Man for Man take for a fee and make number one and and you know Clarence who's dead now but Clarence the mad way in which they get together the mad way in which chance um, forces them together and, and honestly as well this is I'm comparing this to the review moment the review moment is amongst some of those that I'd known coming in but I found myself reading the early parts and thinking and I'd because I'm a dullard an idiot I've never thought well, I slagged off Trump for being a draft dodger. I never thought, why isn't Bruce Springsteen dead? You know, in some Vietnamese paddy field. So the story of why he's not in Vietnam 
It's brilliant, but for me, because I'm a sap, the the story of his dead friends is heartrending. And I don't know, it might be my big Dumbo ears, but I hear some of those strains in songs that I liked previously and kind of taken at face value. And now I hear about the the upbringing, his dad, the mental health problems throughout the, the family, the dead friends, the draft that he doesn't have to take up. And the, the strains in the songs and the phrases and the darkness just sound a bit different now. Okay, for us, there is only one boss today and it's not Bruce Springsteen, it's Slavin Village. Time to go. Thanks for listening to the big inside view. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.